1: The word experiment evokes men in white coats, carefully calculated samples and laboratory controlled variables. But this year's Nobel Memorial Prize for Economics recognises a rather different sort, the natural experiment. Its use marked a new era for the profession, one rooted in observations of the real world. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, and in today's show, we'll be speaking to this year's Nobel Prize winners as we explore a real world revolution in economics. The Nobel announcement is the Super Bowl Sunday of economics. Then at Money Talks, our post-match analysis comes from trade and international economics editor and this week's free exchange columnist, Ryan Avent. Ryan, thanks for being with us. It's a
2: pleasure as always.
1: Talk us through this year's award.
2: Well, you know, it's the economics Nobel is one of the, the highlights of the year for economists. On the morning of, it's it's always the same. It's a bit of a ritual. The committee members file in and the press goes quiet. Welcome to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. This this year, the Academy kept us waiting a little longer than expected.
3: We are a little bit late because it took some time to reach some of the laureates, but we are now ready to announce the prize to you and to the world. But it all worked out. This year's prize is about drawing conclusions from unintended experiments. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the Sveriges Riksbank prize in economic sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel. With one half to David Card for his empirical contributions to labor economics. And the other half jointly to Joshua D. Angrist and Guido W. Imbens for their methodological contributions to the analysis of causal relationships.
1: We have three winners this year David Card, now of the University of California at Berkeley. Joshua Angrist of MIT and Guido Imbens of Stanford University. And we'll hear from professors Card and Angrist in just a moment. I've found over the years that economics Nobels can sometimes be a bit wonkish or a bit underwhelming. What do you make of this one?
2: Yes, it can't be tricky as the, the person who often finds himself writing about the award. Uh, you know, sometimes you get research that's very easy to explain and easy to understand if you're a layperson. And then sometimes you get this incredibly complicated sort of methodological stuff that's kind of difficult to communicate. This year's award was a bit of both. But the main, I think, thing that was being rewarded was a change in the way that economists do empirical work. And it, it really is quite significant because it it's transformed the field of economics from one which was dominated by theory to one in which the empirical work where you're sort of figuring out what's actually happening in the economy is really the more dominant theme in a lot of the, the papers that are published. And so, you know, what I think we're able to do to a much greater extent now because of the laureates' work is, is say more clearly when we think one factor in the economy causes another. I thought Eva Merrick, one of the members of the Nobel Committee, put it rather well.
3: Many important questions are about cause and effect. Will people become healthier if their income increases? How does immigration affect wages and employment in the receiving countries? Do lockdowns reduce the spread of
2: infections? The problem with these big questions is that it's really hard to know what would have happened under different circumstances. Uh, You know, what the counterfactual would have been.
3: How healthy would an individual have been had their income been higher or lower?
2: The ideal way to resolve that would would be to use a randomized experiment Uh, and this is something that is typically used in in other fields like medicine Uh, you divide up your test subjects into control and treatment groups and then you can get a very clear sense of what sort of effect the treatment's having but in the social sciences that's often really difficult to do sometimes it's difficult to do for logistical reasons sometimes for political or ethical reasons
3: this year's laureates have shown that it's still possible to answer these broad questions about cause and effects, and that the way to do that is to use natural experiments. Now, to those
1: unfamiliar with the phrase, natural experiment sounds a little bit like a contradiction in terms. How often does nature provide situations that sufficiently resemble a randomized experiment?
2: Well, more often than you'd think. What we mean when we talk about a natural experiment is some sort of quirk of, of history or policy that ends up having the effect of dividing individuals into control and treatment groups in a way that makes, you know, analysis of the situation more clean. One of the best illustrations of this is one of the, the papers that was really sort of fundamental to this award. You know, back in the early 90s, David Card and the late Alan Kruger, uh, who I think probably would have shared in this prize if he'd lived They were studying the effects of minimum wage changes across the economy. And and the sort of assumption in economics, the kind of result that came out of theory was that if you increase the minimum wage, you ought to see a sharp decline in employment. And that's because in the theory, firms are employing uh, as many workers as it makes economic sense to employ They're hiring right up to the point where they're sort of breaking even. And so then if you force them to pay a higher wage, they necessarily have to cut back Card and Kruger thought that they could do a better job sort of teasing out whether or not this was happening. And and one way they did this was by studying a change in one U.S. state, New Jersey, and comparing what happened in New Jersey after the minimum wage increase with what happened over the same period in neighboring Pennsylvania, which didn't have a, a minimum wage rise. And so you had these two very similar labor markets that were right next to each other. But in one case, the minimum wage went up. In the other case, it didn't. And so that is an example of a natural experiment. And what they were able to show by studying this was that actually you didn't end up seeing those big negative employment effects that theory had told you to expect. You know, it's a very straightforward idea. We'll just find cases where we can can sort of sort out what's doing what. But it did end up being revolutionary. It ended up sparking just an enormous flood of new empirical work that I think has changed the way economists think about a lot of things across a lot of different questions.
1: I got to speak to Professor Card yesterday and since the Nobel Committee seemed to have such difficulty reaching the winners, I started off by asking him where he was when he got the call.
4: Um, well, I'd just uh, flown into San Francisco. I had been visiting my mom and um, I arrived at uh, our house at around one thirty. and I had, a sh- I had a shower and was having a glass of wine and my wife's cell phone forwarded an email or a message from our um, answering machine in our other house and it said that it was somebody from Sweden, and I thought it was um, one of my old high school friends <laughs> who uh, was having a joke on my behalf. It turned out that it was this Nobel committee.
1: And uh, what's your week been like since?
4: Well, no sleep um, yesterday. Uh, they make you um, go to all these interviews and stuff. And then uh, I have to say, my, I've never had so much email in my life.
1: Although you've been doing lots of interviews, we're really thrilled that you've joined us for a bit. Um, Just to start, I mean, you know, I studied your research as an undergrad economist myself. So it's really exciting for me to see you awarded for it. Just paint a picture of what the profession was like when you started out. Um, How theory-centric was it? How has it changed since?
4: Uh, Well, I I mean, I started out a long, long time ago in the 70s. At that time, most... um, highly respected economists were mainly doing theoretical research. There were a small handful of people doing more applied work. Virtually all of their work was looking at aggregate data like GNP accounts type data, you know, consumption, income. And that was the approach that was used to study the minimum wage too. It was a simple analysis of year-to-year fluctuations in the employment rate of teenagers and how that was correlated with the level of the minimum wage, the average minimum wage in the country.
1: Did you have a eureka moment when you realized the potential of, of using a natural experiment?
4: Um, actually, um, sometime in the 1980s, the field as a whole, labor economics at least, was was gradually realizing that we needed to try and move things to a more credible basis for evidence. The intellectual force of that was my thesis advisor, Orly Ashenfelter at Princeton. Orly had worked um, in the 70s at the federal government for a year studying the effect of training programs for disadvantaged workers. And that's one of the most difficult groups to study because the reason why someone goes into a training program is usually because they've been doing very poorly. And then inevitably, once the program is over, they'll do better. But partially, they were going to recover anyway. And so... Orley had been sort of teaching that, and he and I had written a couple of papers. And I, um, sometime in in the late 80s, I realized that some of those same frameworks and ideas could be used not just at, at the individual level, looking at individual workers, but could be applied to things like the citywide labor market or statewide labor market. Then Alan and I, Alan Kruger and I, he just happened to be sitting in Princeton doing our you know, day-to-day business and we read in the newspaper about Jersey was going to raise the minimum wage and we thought, well, maybe this would be an opportunity to really carefully design a, a prospective analysis of that.
1: Your work together with that of Professor Angrist and Imbens is credited with being at the vanguard of the credibility revolution. Do you see that revolution as having further to go.
4: Well, I, I'm not entirely sure it should be called a revolution maybe. To, to me it was more of an evolution, I guess, but there's always room for improvement. As president of the American Economic Association this year, I've been facing a couple of examples of that. Um, one of the responses to the problems of getting evidence in, in the field of economics and in other fields as well has been to set up registrations of um, randomized control trials. And so people said, well, well, let's do RCTs, randomized controlled trials of different things. And a lot of this is done in in areas like uh, development economics where someone's trying to evaluate a health innovation or something like that in a poor country. But there's a concern that, in fact, what happens is somebody's doing a bunch of RCTs and only ones that are successful or work out particularly well get reported. And so even if you've got you know, the most rigorous kind of randomized evidence, it's not necessarily the case that people in outside the research community really can understand the, the total picture because there's a biased presentation of the results. I think economics has been at the forefront in trying to make sure that the research that is done is carefully documented and replicable. Actually, one of the major things that Alan Kruger and I did with our minimum wage study, we put the data online back before there was an internet. So we put our data online and made it available to people with a FTP server. So we said, okay, you can just go get the data yourself. And that has become a little bit more widespread in economics, but there's always room for improvement.
1: And finally, as somebody who, perhaps to start with, ran counter to the prevailing winds in the profession, what advice do you have for young researchers starting out?
4: Well... Last night I had an opportunity to go through an archive I kept of all the reviews uh, and interviews and columns and stuff from the work that Krueger and I did and the minimum wage. The Economist in the 1990s was deeply suspicious of our research and really carefully dissed us a number of times. So it, it was very interesting to see how negative the receptions were, including from people who now putatively appear to support evidence-based analysis. And so I think my my number one thing to tell people would be if lots of people are complaining about your work, that's probably a good sign.
1: And ignore reviews in The Economist. For sure. I'm going to go look up those um, those reviews that you mentioned. So um, <laughs> thanks very yeah, much for mentioning them. by me.
4: all means do that. There was a lot of conservative economists and others saying, well, this just shows how terrible economics is. Alan and I had this archive, and we, uh, we always got a laugh out of how, for example, one thing that used to happen is people would say, well, give, us the, give me the data, and I'll have that data in five minutes. I'll show that you're all screwed up. So we'd send them the data, and then nothing would happen. <laughs> people are, you know, but many economists are extremely self-assured, and they think that everyone else is a cheat or a moron or both. <laughs> so so uh, you know that you know to some extent i guess that's our undergraduate training that's why people hate economists
1: do you think that's changed do you think economists have become more open minded since or it's still the same
4: i mean a lot of economists are very arrogant and um we are influential and um you know the of all the social scientists sciences we tend to receive the most attention say in policy circles And we've also, you know, pushed our frontiers to cover topics like, you know, families and things like that, that are kind of on the purview between economics and other fields. And so other people think of us as um, very boorish, (laughs) at a minimum. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Administrators, I I was the chair of my department last year and I had to deal with Dean. Administrators just hate economists because we're so highly paid.
1: That's true, actually. I have, uh, yes, that chimes true with my experience. (laughs) Yeah, yeah
4: and and uh you know physicists and mathematicians and stuff you know there many of them are just incredibly brilliant and and so on but they're not paid very well and so you sit on a committee and these guys are you know people that work on these incredibly complicated things that only maybe 10 people in the whole world can understand and they're looking at some economics paper and they're saying well why does this guy get twice the salary that i get <laughs> and i if i was on that committee i'd say well I remember you know plumber makes 200 bucks an hour <laughs>
1: Professor Karl, thank you very much and congratulations again. Thank you. So, Ryan, how much of that rings true for you about why people hate economists? <laughs> do they?
2: Oh, well, hate is a strong word. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think there is an element of truth there, that there is, uh, you know, there is frustration often uh, with economists, both inside and outside of academia. I don't know how much the pay has to do with it, maybe more within academia than without there is unquestionably an arrogance that is is shared across certainly not all but but across many of them and i think there is this conflicting approach to problems where you know economists feel that they're harder science than a lot of other social science fields but at the same time, they're willing to kind of parachute into any, you know, given social problem and say that they've got the answer. You don't want to tar the entire field with the same brush. But I think there certainly is an element of truth there.
1: And what about the conservatism of economists that Professor Card talks about, including of The Economist newspaper? Do you think the profession has seen some of the error of its ways?
2: I think the profession has made great strides over the last few decades. I think we've gotten away from... Uh, an attitude which was prevalent in the 70s and 80s, where if you were sort of a highfalutin theorist, uh, you thought you could explain everything and, you know, the data didn't really matter to you. You were just kind of confident in your your models, even though there was quite a lot of questionable assumptions going into those models. I think that part of what the credibility revolution has forced upon economists is a, a bit of humility and a willingness to kind of rethink theory that had been questioned by people outside the field for a long time but until there were economists within the field taking data to the questions and coming back with persuasive answers there wasn't that pressure to say okay we need to really take some of these issues more seriously and think harder about how the real world works and then maybe eventually we can push theory in a a more realistic direction
1: okay thanks ryan in a minute, we'll hear from Joshua Angrist about how his work has built on those foundations laid by David Card and Alan Krueger. But first, don't be put off by our initial reaction to Mr Card's work. This week's Economist is bursting with brilliant reporting and cutting-edge analysis. At economist.com, you'll find everything from a breakdown of Joe Biden's latest climate plans to a guide to all you need to know about NFTs or non-fungible tokens. If you're not yet an Economist subscriber, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes for this episode.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
1: After my conversation with David Card, I also got to speak to Joshua Angrist, who shares the second half of the prize with Guido Imbens. Ryan, can you explain how professors Angrist and Imbens developed the work by Card and Kruger?
2: Angrist and Imbens did quite a lot of empirical work on their own and investigated various interesting economic questions. But part of what the prize celebrated, and in particular what it was awarding with respect to their work, were methodological innovations that ended up being pretty important. And this is the part of the prize that gets a little bit trickier to explain. But when you are engaged in this sort of work that uses natural experiments, what you're basically doing is is finding what economists call an instrumental variable. That's the variable that relates to the quirk of history that allows you to kind of get some causal traction. And so if you were to think about how increased education might contribute to earnings later in life. You know, there's a problem there, which is there might be other factors like natural ability that mean that some students both get more education and earn more later in life, but that's quite separate from the direct effect of education on earnings. And so what Angrist and Imbens did that was so crucial was they set out these clear assumptions that had to be true or had to seem true for an instrumental variable for it to be valid to use in one of these experiments. And that was important because it sort of clarified what economists needed to do if they wanted to make this approach work, but then also because then someone reading the paper had a clear sense of whether or not it made sense. They could sort of judge for themselves whether the approach the economists in the paper were taking cleared those bars and then based on that say, you know, I think this is a good research result or maybe one that needs a bit more work.
1: Thanks, Ryan. I got to talk to Professor Angrist a bit about all of that. And it was clearly a bad day for the people working the Nobel Committee's phone bank because he was also just finishing up a holiday when the news came through. Professor Angrist, uh, congratulations. Thanks so much for joining us on Money Talks.
5: Sure, my pleasure. I'm a long-time listener.
1: Tell us how you heard the news.
5: Uh, Well, um, I was trying to get one last day of uh, sailing in on Columbus Day, the holiday. And uh, I got up in the middle of the night, you know, for various reasons. And I had not uh, sort of left my phone on because I wasn't expecting anything exciting. And then I saw a bunch of texts from friends. And I thought, well, maybe there's something going on. I should pay attention.
1: And I guess you've spoken to Wido Imbens, with whom you shared half of the prize.
5: Yes, of course. Of course. We're old friends and we speak often. Um, but yeah, we... we We enjoyed a few moments together. I talked to Hito and Dave Card yesterday morning. Oh, no. um, Yeah, yesterday morning. Seems like ages ago. Yeah.
1: I'm sure sure the days have been a blur.
5: It was an early morning. Yeah.
1: Beyond the the gratification and the recognition, what does the Nobel change for you and what does it say about the profession?
5: It's gratifying to see this kind of work recognised and it really is a a milestone in a sense that David Card, for example, who I think is the leading empirical scholar, maybe ever, is being recognized for all his great scholarship. And the kind of tools that Imbens and I have worked on are really supporting that sort of work, some of which I also do. It's very gratifying to see that this is important enough to be labeled as as some of the best work in the field. It, It was far from clear that Things would evolve that way, you know, when I was a student and in, in my early career.
1: What was the initial reaction to the work that you were doing?
5: Uh, well, we, we struggled in the beginning to get some of our papers published. The sort of key paper was published in Econometrica in 1994. It's the local average treatment effects paper. People call it the late paper for the acronym. We had earlier uh, sort of a simple version of that that we couldn't get published. It was rejected by a bunch of journals. And um, we were lucky that there was an editor that was sympathetic and willing to take the advice of one positive reviewer. Of course, many, many papers are rejected, so I shouldn't bellyache about that. But um, initially, we felt like we were, um, yeah, we were sort of running into the wind. Our agenda was to interpret simple estimators as opposed to offering new, more complicated methods of manipulating the data. And a lot of people didn't like that. They didn't think that that was the right approach to econometric identification and inference.
1: What now for empirical economics? Sort of is, Does the credibility revolution sort of continue? Or what are the main issues that you think researchers need to kind of grapple with?
5: Well, the credibility revolution is a term that Steve Pischke and I coined in a 2010 publication where we sort of Looked at some of the trends you're mentioning, Roshana, where we said, you know, economics has got more empirical, but also empirical work has gotten better. The credibility revolution is really a statement about tools. The methods that we use to answer these questions have improved, sometimes in a very simple way, like, for example, we're much more likely to use randomized trials to estimate causal effects. And my student, my former student, my PhD student, Esther Duflo, who was recognized with a Nobel herself, a few years ago, is in the vanguard of using randomized trials to estimate the effects of various sorts of policy interventions in developing countries. And that work is having a huge effect. It is challenging because trials can be expensive and logistically complex. So economists have to start to learn how to do that kind of work. It's, it's, more, it's something like medicine, where you have a lab and you need to have employees and you need to have infrastructure. There's plenty of work to be done there.
1: On the subject of natural experiments, I suppose, we've been living through the pandemic and seen lots of different policy responses. How fruitful an area do you think that will be to, to researchers?
5: Well, the pandemic is a little bit paradoxical. It sort of looks like a natural experiment, I think, superficially, because like overnight, March 2020, my students are sent home, you know, my MIT students, the world changes, classrooms, schools go dark. Um, So that sounds sort of like unexpected random change, but that so many things changed at once that it's not clear how I should understand the experiment. The hallmark of a good experiment is that one thing changes while other things are relatively stable. My paper with Alan Kruger looks for variation in education, while other things that are related to earnings like motivation, ability, and family background are held fixed. And we figured out that the time of year that you're born interacts with compulsory attendance laws to produce that kind of experiment. So the pandemic, you know, what is it changing? Well, it's changing a whole lot of things at once. And so it gets much harder to figure out what the lessons of that are going to be.
1: Now, you said that um, you felt that you were running into the wind. What advice do you have for researchers who are getting just getting started in the field?
5: Well, you know, scholarship is, it's a little bit like um, a portfolio problem. So you have to decide where you're going to place your bets. So I've done some methodological work, but my thesis was empirical. And I've always been very interested in empirical questions like the economic returns to schooling, the effects of family size on parents, the effects of class size on uh, children's achievement. More more recent years, I've been studying education reform in our lab called Blueprint Labs here at MIT, uh, which I run with David Otter and Parag Pathak. So one thing is to diversify. And another thing is to, you know, don't give up too easily, which is easy to say. You know, it can be quite discouraging. Scholarship can be quite discouraging. You get more negative feedback than positive. I like to tell graduate students that, uh, A good scholar is like a good hitter in baseball. You get on base about a third of the time, you're doing pretty well, which means you strike out most of the time.
1: Professor Angrist, thank you so much and congratulations again.
5: Thank you, guys. Thanks for the thoughtful questions.
1: Ryan, we've just heard from Professor Angrist about the progress and the work that's been done over the the past quarter century it's really hard to imagine now how economists ever did without real-world data analysis or could ever think to relegate it to second fiddle. How important has this work been for the profession?
2: I think it's hard to overstate how important the work has been. We talk about this credibility revolution, but I think it's important to kind of dig into what's actually come out of that. And so if you look at, for instance, the work that Cardin Kruger did on the minimum wage it launched, first and foremost, this entire follow-up literature, sort of investigating the effects of minimum wage increases and using lots of other natural experiments to kind of hone in on exactly what happens. Uh, but beyond that, it got economists asking questions about why it might be the case that an increase in the minimum wage didn't reduce employment. And so those questions have led to all sorts of fruitful Places about bargaining power within the workplace, about the relationship between wages and productivity, um, all these different things that have enriched theory, that have enriched the empirics and that have, you know, continued to, to sort of generate new questions that economists are seeking to answer.
1: I completely agree with you for what it's worth. I mean, the work that's been awarded this year is something that is sort of foundational, I think, for undergraduate economics. And that perhaps tells you something about the lag with which a Nobel is awarded. You know, the stuff back in the 1990s was revolutionary. And, and now it's sort of such an important part of the subject.
2: Well, you, you said this to me uh, <laughs> earlier this week, Krishna, and I, and I said that makes me feel old because, you know, the 1990s doesn't seem that long ago. It's, <laughs> it's You're not, not that
1: much older than me. (laughs) But, um, But just on the on the credibility revolution, there's been some debate recently over sort of studies or experiments that have not been, you know, been able to be replicated in the social sciences. How much of a problem is that?
2: Well, I think it is a problem. I, you know, I don't think it's something that discredits everything that's come before. I think it's more that anytime you have some sort of major change in the way a field does its work, there's a process of sorting out what methods are valid and what methods aren't. You've had just vast amounts of empirical work. Sometimes that empirical work isn't of the quality that you would like to see, may not replicate. I think one of the, the trickier things that that sort of has emerged out of this, though, is is the question of the applicability of a result from a natural experiment to conditions more broadly. Inevitably, if you're, you're doing natural experiment work, you're in kind of a weird situation. That's the thing that allows you to kind of get that traction to explain what's causing what. What we've learned is that we are able to say some interesting things about the world, but it's it's tricky to formulate grand ideas about how the world works based on those things. And I think there's still big questions that economists has to to wrestle with in terms of how firmly they can establish a, a you know particular result as knowledge that can be trusted and built upon.
1: Where next for the use of natural experiments then? Where might the balance between theory and empirics lie?
2: Well, that's a very good and, and, and difficult question. I guess there are two things I'd say about this. One is that data is the raw material on which the credibility revolution has been built. And so it's going to be interesting to see in coming decades how the sort of enormous increase in the data that's being gathered through the digitization of our lives, how that ends up affecting empirical work, whether we're able to draw more interesting or, or firmer conclusions about the world, or whether we may run into trouble related to, to privacy and, and who knows what else. But I think the other thing is that theory has, has definitely taken a back seat within the field over the past few decades but ultimately what you'd like to do you know if you're a social scientist if you're an economist is be able to to say some big things about how the world works as these insights from empirical work accumulate can we begin to put together better theory and I think it would be really interesting. I don't know how optimistic I am about it, but I think it would be really interesting if in the decades to come, we get some substantial advances in theory that really give us a more of an insight into how the world works. And that maybe sort of address some of those concerns about economists and their arrogance. And so finally, they're going to earn those salaries that everyone's jealous of.
1: Ryan Oven, thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to David Card and Joshua Angrist. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you like what we do, do take a moment to leave us a rating or better yet a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcasteconomist.com. The producers were Jason Hoskin, Pete Norton, and Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer and the editor is Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Rachna Schahnbogue, and in London, this is The Economist.